Good. All right. So welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us for the session today, uh, where we're going to talk about how HubSpot got beyond 4.9's availability on AWS uh, using SignalFX and specifically using uh, detectors on SignalFX. Uh, my name is Patrick Lin. Um, I run uh, the product team at SignalFX. Uh, and with me is James Moore from HubSpot. Uh, he runs the uh, machine learning team, or is the tech lead for the machine learning team, and also uh, is part of the big data team there. So what we're going to do today uh, is do a little bit of an intro to SignalFX for those of you who don't have a uh, background in who we are and what we do. Uh, and then I'm going to turn it over to James, and he's going to talk about how they were able to use uh, SignalFX to drive uh, some predictive analytics to figure out when they were going to have a problem uh, and then do some automated, uh, actually not remediation, but actually preventative maintenance uh, on that. Uh, and then uh, we're going to take that and say, all right, now that you've seen how uh, they did it at uh, HubSpot, how can you do it uh, yourself, right, using uh, SignalFX and using a bunch of things that actually are part of the AWS portfolio, all right? So let's go ahead and get started. Um, so with SignalFX, I think the uh, background on the company is that um, uh, our technical founders came out of Facebook, um, and not just uh, any part of Facebook, but the part of Facebook that built the monitoring system there, right? Now, if you can imagine uh, what that means, uh, obviously, you know, that meant that they were able to deal with large scale, right? People always think that when they think Facebook, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of servers, trillions of data points, uh, that kind of thing, right? And so that is part of the, the heritage and part of what we do at SignalFX, handle massive volumes of data. Now, uh, probably more important than that, though, uh, is how you can make that data useful, right? And useful for the large number of development teams that are there uh, who are trying to actually make sense of what's going on uh, in their environment. Um, and so there are a few things that I think we learned uh, from their experience there um, at, at Facebook for uh, delivering monitoring uh, into that environment. So the first part uh, is that um, uh, in order to uh, provide monitoring for that kind of environment, you have to have the notion of self-service, right? Development teams and uh, individual developers uh, in an environment where they're moving fast and breaking things, so to speak, uh, is uh, you know, essentially requires uh, that individual developers be able to say, hey, here are the metrics that I care about for my system. Um, here's the visualization that provides me with the insight that I need about it. Here are the kinds of patterns that I want to look for uh, that are going to tell me when there's a problem. Right? Um, you can, of course, hand that off uh, to operations later, but it's got to start from people who know what's going on. Uh, and so that notion of self-service is very much built into SignalFX. Um, the second piece of this is that it has to be real time, right? When you're moving fast, right, a, a large part of that is making sure that if you make a change and say that change isn't going the way you expect, right, uh, then you want to be able to revert that as quickly as possible. And so you need to be able to see what's going on as it happens. And if you want to drive automated remediation off that, for example, you also need to have uh, faith in the data that's coming back uh, quickly to you so you can make the necessary uh, corrections to it. Uh, the third piece here uh, of what they learned in that environment is that monitoring essentially is an analytics problem, right? In that kind of scale, uh, scaled up environment and also uh, in the case where you have many services uh, being deployed, right? Uh, in today's world with, uh, you know, the, the serverless type stuff that you see today and so on, um, it's very rarely uh, uh, simply a matter of saying, hey, you know, this component failed, therefore uh, that's what I care about, right? Oftentimes it's a matter of saying, you know, what are the aggregates uh, that I care about? What are the patterns that I care about um, across the horizontally scaling clusters that I have, right? Uh, and so scale, uh, real-time, self-service, 
um, and analytics, right? Those are the things that uh, SignalFX is built on. Uh, and if you go into our booth, we'll show you how that uh, works in the case of infrastructure and so on. Uh, but today we're actually going to talk more about how it's uh, used uh, also for infrastructure, but in more of a custom use case. Now, uh, what we did uh, with all of that experience was build an architecture that uh, is designed to be able to scale super well and to provide streaming analytics on top of real-time data, right? Um, and so I'm not going to go into gory detail on this slide, but I think uh, the highlight here uh, and the takeaway is really that when you think about um, uh, typical monitoring systems, right, traditional monitoring systems, they take in the data, they persist it to some data store, and then when you need it to render a chart or when you want to trigger some kind of alert, it will pull it out, right? Now, that works fine until you start to get relatively large amounts of data, right? And things start to slow down. So if your monitoring system uh, starts to run into situations where uh, you have alerts that show up minutes after something happened already, right? Where it starts to be like, hey, is that a little bit too late? It's likely because the architecture is based on that more traditional uh, kind of uh, uh, system, right? And so uh, in SignalFX, the difference is that what we do is we stream that data. We do persist it, of course, because you want to be able to use it uh, for historical purposes, but we stream it directly to the charts or the alerts that need it um, so that they can act on uh, these things uh, in real time. All right, now, I've been talking about analytics. Now, what do we mean uh, when we talk about analytics? Uh, at some level, it's just saying, hey, I can apply mathematical or you know, statistical functions to the raw data that I get. But what do I actually get out of that? Well, um, one of the main things that you get out of that is that it allows you to monitor the signal that matters, right? Monitor the signal rather than simply the raw data that you're getting from whatever your instrumentation is sending in. Okay. And so if I want to have an aggregate metric, right? So let's say instead of uh, just errors, I want to look at the sum of the errors by some particular service, right? Or if you want to have composite metrics, right? I want to look at the ratio of cache hits to cache misses. Or I want to look at a derived metric. I want to look at the 95th percentile for the latency uh, across this service rather than uh, on an individual node. Those are the kinds of things that allow you to define um, the particular signal that you care about. And with analytics uh, in SignalFX, it's not just about the signal, but it's also about defining the threshold that you can use, right? Uh, and so if you want to say things like, how do I uh, know if you know, a, a node is uh, uh, you know, not like the others uh, in the cluster? Well, then in that case, my, uh, my threshold is actually going to be defined by some aggregate metric across all the different elements, right? Uh, and so if I can create um, a derived metric that I can then use as my threshold, then I have a really interesting way of getting to a more expressive alert, something that tells me uh, when there's actually a problem versus, hey, it was greater than 70, right? Um, now, all of this is done uh, in a streaming fashion such that you're able to uh, look at the data in a very interactive manner. Um, and so it's very different from the older environments where you would say, let me create this query, let me start the job, uh, and then let me go get a cup of coffee, right? Because uh, actually in our case, um, it's going to be operating on that data uh, as it comes in, and you're going to be able to interactively use it, uh, play with it, uh, explore it, uh, and then troubleshoot uh, on that basis, right? Okay. Um, so there's a lot of us uh, here uh, in the booth. Uh, I don't need to uh, tell you about all the people, but uh, suffice it to say, we're ready uh, to, to chat. Um, and uh, just a sampling of the types of customers that are using SignalFX. Um, I'm sure you'll recognize most of the names here. Uh, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to uh, James from HubSpot. I'm James. I work with the big data team at HubSpot. Now, a little bit about HubSpot. Who is HubSpot? 
we build marketing software to power the inbound marketing revolution. Uh, and the HubSpot Big Data team helps uh, support over 50 product and engineering teams uh, with HBase as a service. So each of these teams consists of a PM, a designer, their engineering team, and is designed to work independently. So we don't have a traditional operations team that's getting paged for everyone's services. Each service manages their own operations, which makes it even more important that when we provide a database as a service, those teams can trust that it will always work. So what problems are we solving? HBase stores all of our customer data. We have over 417 individual instances and 3,500 microservices interacting with that. We end up having to patch HBase to help support that kind of multi-tenancy, because when you have that many different services uh, multiplied by 35,000 individual customers, ranging in size from you know, a small startup to a uh, company with tens of thousands or even millions of customers, the traffic patterns tend to get a little bit tricky to deal with. We also have to uh, deal with consistent uh, loss of service to impairment. At AWS, you will see about a 3.5% uh, failure rate uh, due to system impairment every month. Um, but despite that, we got to four nines of availability in every cluster. Now, it's important to keep in mind that no one can stop hardware from failing. The key is to figure out how to predict that it's going to fail, if it's going to fail in a less desirable way, and manage those failures when they occur. And so a little bit about HBase. It is the Hadoop database. Uh, it's based off of the big table paper and uses a log-structured merge tree under the hood. Uh, that generally means that we're doing a little bit of uh, amortization to make it so that inserts to the database are extremely fast. Uh, and later on, we have to eat a little bit of overhead to do background compaction. So what is Bigtable? Uh, imagine I want to store a set of animals, uh, and I want to track their names and locations, some other properties I might come up with later. Um, and I want to do this for all animals in the world. Well, I might arrange the data something like this. And uh, while this isn't an idealized uh, table, uh, it does illustrate how the data is logically set up. So we have the key, column family, column qualifier, timestamp, and value. All of these entries are concatenated together and then sorted in byte order. So if uh, these are real animals that I started uh, to gather, um, there's Danny the aardvark in San Diego. Uh, and you can see that we located him at a certain Unix timestamp, uh, roughly dates to about a month ago. And then uh, there's my cat, Rose, but we don't know her current location yet. And that's all right. Because this is a columnar data format, it's all right if we don't know all the columns on all of the records. There just isn't any data there. So region. Uh, all of that data gets split up so it can be distributed across uh, servers. And it's split up by key. So if you imagine I have aardvark and cat are my only two records uh, or keys in this uh, table then the only possible region combinations I can make are uh, aardvark and cat, region one and two. Uh, I do have to make exclusive uh, byte boundaries around that, but if uh, 
Later on, I ever needed to merge these regions back together, so I wanted one region that included both Aardvark and Cat. I'm free to do that later on. Uh, one other important aspect of this is that in this data structure, I can actually uh, iterate it across all uh, possible regions. Uh, and so putting that all back together to kind of come up with what does an actual region server look like in practice, there's two independent projects at work. One is the actual region server part of the HBase project, and the other is HDFS, part of the Hadoop project. Uh, there are a few special purpose APIs that kind of cut through that boundary. Uh, they exist specifically for HBase's uh, benefit in uh, the Hadoop ecosystem. Um, so that allows HBase to leverage the local data nodes when you co-locate uh, the data nodes in region servers. However, you're free not to do that. Uh, each H file uh, is written out due to that log-structured merge tree. As we accumulate the writes in memory and then periodically flush out those H files, they sit there immutably over time until we compact and rewrite all of the data for that region. One other interesting note about this structure that's important to keep in mind is that because HDFS is storing the data and has its own block-level replication strategy, every server in the cluster is actually going to have a piece of this region on it. We do uh, get lucky a little bit in that uh, the region that server that wrote the records initially will have at least one block of every, uh, or at least one copy of every block in that region. But in the event of a failure, uh, because every server in the cluster has it, we can actually re-replicate all of the data uh, at about 200 to 300 gigabits per second on our larger clusters because we get the bandwidth from every instance. So how does this look in practice when we actually have a client and it needs to retrieve some data from HBase? Well, it first needs to uh, know where the regions are. And for that purpose, uh, there's a special key in Zookeeper that tells it where to look for a special region, the meta region, which stores the locations and byte boundaries of every uh, region in the cluster. From there, the client can actually figure out which region server it needs to uh, speak to to get its data and can go and fetch the data. Uh, the meta region is cached very aggressively uh, so that we limit the number of back and forth trips uh, through that flow because it's not the fastest flow to hit Zookeeper, then meta, and then uh, the data that you want. But it's also important to keep in mind there's only ever one region server that's actually hosting this data. So in the event that that region server is having some trouble, we're kind of out of luck. Uh, there's no other copy of the data to replicate or uh, route to or no other logical uh, copy of the data. So failure conditions for HBase. With HBase, those partial failures matter a lot. So in this case, we had a real uh, region server. Uh, you can see it's a uh, queue time at the 99th percentile. For the, so the amount of time a request just sat there waiting to get allocated a thread to start processing uh, spiked up to 176 seconds, which since we're normally optimized to be going very fast, our clusters do over 10 million reads per second at peak, a 176 seconds is a long time to wait. And while this is only one server, and it's only one server out of maybe 180 in our largest clusters, that can uh, still prevent the client from actually fetching other data. Even if you apply circuit breaking to limit the blast radius of uh, that failure, 
then we're still going to have to uh, deal with the error conditions where there's a whole server that we can't talk to. So if your client requests actually need that data, you're just going to get an error back. So how do you find these partial failures? Uh, AWS Health Checks are great at what they do, and they will tell you if an instance is actually on the network at any given time. But what if the network is slow or the disks are starting to fail? Uh, how do we deal with those conditions? Uh, for instance, uh, this chart at the bottom tracks uh, the number of I.O. errors coming out of uh, the kernel uh, as it talks to a disk, which uh, typically will start spiking up a bit before the disk actually hard fails or just locks up if uh, your kernel and that disk don't get along very well. But how about uh, cluster level failures? So how do we know that we have the right amount of capacity in this uh, cluster? Uh, if I have 180 servers and I want to know, am I running out of CPU resources? It's very hard to figure that out from just looking at an individual chart. But if I switch to percentile views, I can uh, track the 50th percentile and the 99th and then make a decision as to whether I'm running out of raw CPU uh, or is my load becoming unevenly distributed. Uh, so if my 99th percentile is at, say, 95%, but my 50th is hanging around at 30%, I definitely have a load problem. And similarly, I can track if there's uh, some set of bad requests that are just hammering random servers in the cluster. I can still see that load problem in the 99th percentile, even though each individual server may have only been impacted for a brief period of time. And so how do we get to nine, four nines of availability? It's great that we know this information, but it's very tricky to turn it into action. And so how we operate at HubSpot is that whenever we see these problems arise, whenever we end up causing a crit sit, as we like to call them, we, tend, we try and look for anything that could have told us about the problem beforehand. Uh, then based on that information, we can continue isolating the signal to find a more actionable metric. And then once we've finally narrowed it down to something that's right most of the time, then we can turn that into automation so that we can avoid having the problem. Uh, I never want to get paged because TCP timeouts are a little bit high. That would be excessive. Uh, but it might indicate a problem with that host. And if I have automation that can just strip that host away, I can avoid the problem. And so you can see what a typical 48 hours looks like uh, of broken TCP sockets. Uh, there are spikes. The AWS network might be having a brief blip that affected a few hosts that our application will ride over because it is generally fault tolerant. Uh, otherwise, maybe a client uh, exited very abruptly or didn't close its connections properly on shutdown. Uh, so we can end up with these TCP timeouts as the socket was waiting there, hoping for someone to talk to it, and never did. Uh, but what about a more exceptional case? So you can see here, there are a few hosts they have uh, some, you know, consistently high behavior. And, uh, you know, individually, if we were to look at a static threshold, this wouldn't be that uh, intriguing because if I went over a broader window of time, I'd see spikes up to these static thresholds pretty routinely. But if I go ahead and sum that over 24 hours, the signal becomes very clear that there's something wrong with it, this hardware. 
And uh, this particular incident actually came from a period of time where we were migrating uh, one cluster of about 100 servers from D2 instances to I3 instances, which we got a nice 2x uh, performance boost from, uh, which was amazing. But we ran into an issue where just a few of those instances came up and uh, weren't doing so hot. And they had high packet loss. And eventually, when we looked at this uh, after the fact, we found out that they had only had about five megabits per second of network throughput. Uh, there was just something bad about the combination of those instances and our particular kernel. And uh, we did reach out to AWS support, and they were very helpful in resolving that in the long term. But nevertheless, I still want to have automation that can just remove these uh, instances, uh, because this is not something a human would notice, but computers can. And so tranquility. Tranquility is HubSpot's in-house auto-scaling uh, system. It manages a pool of instances, and it's been somewhat attuned to the problems that can arise when you're talking about uh, large databases. For instance, I never under any circumstances want to terminate an instance if that had the only copy of my data. <laughs> I will wait and hope that maybe it comes back uh, or anything like that. I also have concurrent restrictions where if I was to try and terminate the entire cluster at the same time, there may not be new instances for the data to go to, and it may never uh, complete. Similarly, if the instances have scheduled maintenance, they're impaired, they were ever impaired at any point in the past, or if they're running an old Amy, I want to get them out of my cluster. Uh, this also allows us to just seamlessly roll uh, database clusters, uh, which we do about once every two months where we can just swap the instance template and all of our region servers will be replaced. But I don't want this to happen during quiet hours either because uh, I have backups running and all sorts of other uh, high load activities. Now, we still had those detectors that were kind of intriguing. We had a good signal coming out of them. And I wonder how can I convert that signal into an action? And that's where the service called Adreet came in where based on this small little YAML file, we can take in uh, that detector and then uh, trigger uh, actions. So we need to send a Slack notification, nice and easy, uh, very low risk, or we need to replace a host, which via Tranquility is extremely low risk, um, or we need to bounce a service or run a fairly large and complex job. Uh, Adreet does all of that, and it will also retry those actions in the event of failure, do all those nice things, um, including, in particular, rate limiting. So I would never want a faulty detector that may have been uh, configured incorrectly to, say, trigger graceful replacements of all of uh, my instances. I'd want to have some barrier on that, even though it wouldn't cause an issue. I just don't want to see literally every server be replaced. And so 4.9's availability really comes from this preventative uh, maintenance. 90% uh, of the time, we are just replacing instances. If we see kernel errors, why have an instance uh, sitting around in your cluster like that? We have uh, statistics going back that show that if a server ever did go impaired at any point in the past, even for a few seconds, it'll probably go impaired again, and it's better for us to remove it proactively. And Fundamentally, when you're in AWS, 
there's no cost to doing this. We can churn all of our servers once a month, uh, and we will get fresh hardware every time. If there was something actually problematic about the underlying hardware, Amazon can replace it or uh, work to mediate that. And similarly, it may just be our particular kernel on that particular piece of hardware just hit a condition it didn't like. But we're still making all of these things better. So uh, as we grow, we've kept finding new issues, and that's where we've had to lean into monitoring and automation to find these preventative signals and then carry forth and uh, trigger actions to remediate these problems. Uh, as we've uh, scaled up, we encountered an interesting issue where uh, all of our MySQL instances needed to be, have their volumes resized constantly because we needed to scale up throughput or there was uh, other issues going on, and we can also automate that via Dream. All right. Great. So yeah. I'm going to switch over here. Uh, and tell you a little bit about how you can do this yourself. Uh, and so uh, Wi-Fi seems to have gone a little sketchy on me, so I'm going to rely on screenshots uh, that show you how, how to go ahead and do this. Um, and so uh, I actually went through our demo system to go look for metrics that might be relevant, right? So um, happened to find one that looked a lot like the one that James was using himself. Uh, TCP retransmits, a uh, little bit different, but close enough, right, for government work. And so uh, I found that signal and I charted it, right? And when you take a look at it, you're like, hey, uh, that's kind of not very interesting because it's just noisy, right? You don't see a whole lot of interesting stuff in there. Maybe you could make an argument that there's a bimodal distribution, but, you know, that's not super, super insightful. So uh, what I did then next uh, is go ahead and take a look at a longer time frame because maybe there's something uh, lurking historically that will show me something uh, interesting. And sure enough, uh, when I went ahead and looked the last day, oddly enough, we had a whole bunch of noise uh, in the system, uh, which was showing me uh, that there was a higher level of these retransmits happening uh, during a particular period of time. Um, now, looking at that noise as, as uh, you know, a, a bunch of lines, again, not telling you a whole lot, uh, and that's where the analytics come into play, where um, I played around uh, with a couple of different variations on this to say, hey, maybe uh, it has to do with a region that's having a problem, or maybe it has to do with a particular service uh, that's having a problem, uh, or maybe uh, it's a particular instance type that's having problems. So I tried that out. Uh, you know, that took about 30 seconds. I got to a view which showed me that, in fact, there's a particular instance type that was exhibiting a much higher rate uh, of these uh, retransmits than everything else, and it turns out uh, that they're i32x largest, right? So uh, random fact, uh, in our case, something happened, and we got the, our signal. Now, once you have that signal, it's a simple matter to go ahead and say, great, um, I have the thing that I care about. Uh, what I want to do then next is say, um, you know, how do I uh, make sure that I find that uh, pattern uh, when it happens again? Uh, and so uh, there are a variety of uh, different ways of looking for patterns that we uh, provide to you. Uh, the standard ones that people often start with are just, hey, I want to use a static threshold, so if it's greater than, uh, I think, maybe eight or something like that, maybe I should be told. Uh, but oftentimes you don't know what that number is going to be ahead of time. Right? Uh, or maybe the signal is something that has some uh, periodicity to it so that it's different on Mondays uh, than from Thursdays. Right? So how do you take that into account when you are looking for those kinds of patterns? Uh, and so in our case, uh, what I simply did was pick uh, the sudden change uh, detector, which just says something like, hey, if it uh, looks different in the last five minutes relative to the last hour, then let me know. Right? So I went ahead and did that um, and tried it out. 
And so when you pick that particular uh, threshold in our case, what we'll do is run a preview for you and show you what would have happened against historical data uh, for the last day or so um, and tell you whether, in fact, that would have picked out the thing that you cared about. Right? And as you can see here, uh, in this case, uh, it did find uh, it for me uh, quite quickly. And as a result, I now have something that's going to find the pattern that I care about. And then I can choose to say, OK, great, uh, now let me notify somebody. Right? I can put it out in uh, Slack, HipChat, uh, what have you, um, and have a custom message about it. Uh, or uh, in this case, I can say, let me output that in a webhook, uh, and then you can take advantage of that to go ahead and drive some automation. Okay. So let me go ahead and switch back here. All right. So once we have that webhook and we start thinking about automation, an obvious choice inside of AWS is to use Lambda. And so you can imagine we have that unhealthy host detector. And we're thinking any host that matches this metric, we just don't want it in our cluster anymore. Uh, something's a little bit off about it. Uh, and we can make that statement just even probabilistically, like you know, three out of four times, the right action is to remove this host. And worst case scenario, we remove one extra host uh, on occasion. But so if we want to build this actual handling system, uh, we take in that unhealthy host detector, we pass it off to API Gateway, where, which will actually receive the webhook. And importantly, we can then use API Gateway custom authorizers uh, to authenticate uh, this message and ensure that you know, no one on the internet can uh, randomly replace our instances. Uh, pass that along to Lambda, and then finally tell the EC2 auto-scaling API to replace a host. I'm going to gloss over a very important aspect in this architecture, which is the uh, rate limiting. Uh, the reason why I'm doing that is that it's very application specific as to what your risk tolerance is. Um, in some applications, you could replace every instance and it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, in others, you need extremely uh, tight controls on uh, the rate limits. So in our case, uh, without tranquility's extremely tight guarantees around uh, replacing instances and removing hardware, we won't be able to handle these uh, hooks. Let's just take a very basic Lambda webhook handler. So uh, how many of you here have used Lambda before? Very cool. So if I receive that webhook and I just want to do something very simple like log it out, I can just do something simple like this. Uh, the exports.handler function uh, or uh, variable is how Lambda determines what function will actually be executed. And then I pass along just the body of uh, my web request into my little logger, which just logs out which detector it came from. But that's not enough, because I really do need to have some logic in there to uh, provide authentication and ensure that no one on the internet can replace my host. And for that, API Gateway does provide the ability to invoke a, se a separate Lambda function, which just serves the purpose of guaranteeing that the request was authorized. Uh, in this case, SignalFX uses uh, a little variant on JSON web tokens. So we take in the body of the uh, webhook, and then we know that it's encoded using HMAC SHA-1 and we need to hash that body with our known uh, shared secret and then compare that value to the incoming 
uh, value that SignalFX provided. And that's how we guarantee that this actually came from uh, SignalFX and not the random person on the internet. Uh, in the event that uh, doesn't, we just need to spawn with a 403. Uh, and there's a little bit of logic in uh, uh, the custom authorizer spec to return those responses. So let's log which host came in that was unhealthy. So in the event that we uh, receive that webhook, uh, one of the first things that we have to do is flatten out the input JSON. So uh, the inputs include potentially multiple metrics and have different uh, dimensions on that. For most practical purposes and every uh, implementation we have at HubSpot so far, uh, we just take the leaf nodes from that tree uh, because that provides us the information like host and uh, other related uh, dimensions. Uh, most of our metrics that we actually fire alerts on are also uh, single, single uh, metrics. So let's go ahead and flan the inputs. Uh, and then uh, just log out, you know, console.log, receive detector for webhook.detector, and host dimensions.host. We then uh, 200 Mac, which gives us a nice little handler, and I can log something, which is not the most useful place to put the information about the host. Uh, now let's take a look at the auto-scaling API. So it's actually really simple to create an instance of the auto-scaling API inside of a Lambda. You really just have to create an auto-scaling API with AWS.autoscaling. We then have to create a set of params that we're going to pass along to that API just to make sure that, you know, or be able to tell the API that it is unhealthy. One important note about uh, this particular set of params is that I am telling the autoscaling API to ignore any grace period. So as soon as I fire this off, the autoscaling or will uh, remove that host um, and ignore any grace periods that were configured. Uh, and so I just pass it along by a set instance help, and then uh, I'm done. That instance will uh, be removed. So kind of putting that all back together, if uh, I want to go ahead and receive that webhook, flan the JSON, then I need to set the instance health, and then I can return the uh, final value as 200. I have succeeded in handling this uh, message. Uh, in the event that uh, you know this was not a 200, I would want to add a little bit of extra uh, error uh, case handling around this, but uh, can leave that as a exercise for the reader. Uh, and then how do we actually connect this up to API Gateway? API Gateway provides a fantastic user interface that allows you to connect it uh, or define a handler. And I just named it slash handlers, receives a post request, fires off the Lambda function, and I just uh, pointed at the stored uh, Lambda function. All right. Mm -hmm. So thank you, James. So um, that is uh, the mechanism by which HubSpot uh, was able to get to uh, better than four nines and how you can do it uh, yourself as well. Uh, if you're interested to learn more, um, you can stop by our booth. Uh, I think you know we, we did all this stuff before uh, we started to do Lambda monitoring more generally. So you could have sent uh, those metrics to us uh, using things that are now uh, generally available. And you can go check that out uh, at the booth. Um, 
most of what was done uh, through the webhook you could also do using uh, the various APIs that we have, uh, including the SignalFlow API for manipulating our analytics engine directly. Uh, and so uh, there's plenty more information about that online uh, if you're interested. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think that's, that's it for, for today, and uh, happy to take any questions uh, if you've got them. Uh, otherwise, thank you very much for, for coming. Thank you. Uh, hey, Chris. Uh, yes. Uh, so we use uh, all of the analytics suite uh, that's available. Um, so that includes the percentiles, um, summation over time on the me metrics is a really common use case. And uh, we have done some uh, cross-correlation between two or more metrics, uh, but the results of that have been uh, a little bit noisier than we'd like, just because if you're trying to make a greater than other metric statement, we tend to have problems finding metrics that are clean enough that uh, we get a reliable signal out of that approach. Definitely. So we do have support, um, particularly for extremely small clusters uh, in Adrit, to rate limit by any combination of dimensions. So you can string together dimensions like cluster, host, um, anything else you think of uh, tossing in that metric. Um, and then we can set that by just a simple interval uh, rate limit. Uh, for the most part, though, our larger clusters are fairly resilient to overmarking. Uh, and we're pretty all right with uh, having uh, them overmarked because we will replace them about once every two months anyway. Mm -hmm. Cheers. Uh, actually, I'm just curious. Um, when, when do you know? When do you decide when to implement this? Like, uh, and do you know like what the actual impact is of the Oh, uh, certainly. Uh, so. Uh, this was something that we progressed to over a long period of time. So the first step is to start collecting data and build that historical backlog. Um, for us, like when I say that we lose about 3.5% of our instances, we actually have about three years of historical data on a fleet of several thousand uh, AWS instances to say, yep, this is the number. Um, and then similarly, we have this big historical record for what does an HBase server look like across many dimensions and many metrics. Um, over time, the point where you really get to the wanting to automate it fully is that uh, you start seeing that this alert came in and you do exactly this action. And once you get to that point, you really want to start cutting out the uh, people uh, from that equation because no one wants to get woken up just to press a button. Mm -hmm. All right. Cool. We're good. Thank you. Thank you.